So good evening, ladies and gentlemen. As Paul said, my name is Dr. Anna Rowlands, and I, along with Dr. Hayes, run the programme in Catholic social thought and practice within the Centre for Catholic Studies here. It's long been our ambition to create a programme that enables us to explore the most urgent and interesting questions at the interface of theological ethics, economics, politics and society. So it's a particular pleasure for me this evening to be chairing the proceedings. The format for this evening will be as follows. Once I've briefly introduced each of these our speakers, which I'm going to do in one job lot, as it were, they're each going to speak for around 10 to 15 minutes on their topic, and that will leave us for about half an hour, 40 minutes maximum of discussion, contributions and questions from you uh, before we finish. So I'm going to begin my brief introductions to each of our speakers by beginning with our own Vice-Chancellor, Professor Stuart Corbridge. Professor Corbridge joined us here in Durham in 2015 as our 24th Vice-Chancellor and Warden. He's a he has a distinguished background as an academic geographer whose research focuses on geopolitics, development and India in particular, and he's worked both in the academy and also as adv an advisor to government. Professor Corbridge began his academic career with posts in Huddersfield and London universities before choosing to move to the more exotic Syracuse University. In 1988, he was appointed to a lectureship in South Asian geography at Cambridge University, where he remained for the next 11 years, before taking up a post as Professor of International Studies at the, again, rather sunnier University of Miami in the United States and later a chair in geography at the London School of Economics. In 2006, Professor Corbridge moved from the Department of Geography at the LSE to the Department of International Development, of which he was head from 2007 to 2010. Between 2010 and 2013, Professor Corbridge served as pro-director for research and external relations at the LSE. In September 2013, Professor Corbridge was appointed as the first Deputy Director and Provost of the London School of Economics. He is the author of numerous publications, including perhaps his most significant text, Seeing the State, Governance and Governmentality in India. We're also delighted this evening to have with us the Reverend Dr. Augusto Zampini Davis. He's an Argentinian Catholic priest, a former lawyer and a current theological advisor to the British International Development Agency, CAFOD, as well as being a visiting fellow here at the Centre for Catholic Studies in Durham. He has degrees in law, theology and international development. His doctoral research, completed in 2014, focused on a possible dialogue between the work of Amartya Sen and Catholic social teaching, and he will speak this evening on the ways that Catholic social thought might be both challenged and stimulated by an engagement with Sen's work. Dr. Severine Denulin um, is a senior lecturer in international development at Bath University and a fellow of human development um, of the Human Development and Capability Association. Her main areas of research focus on development issues and Sen's capability approach and she's the author of Wellbeing, Justice and Development Ethics. And she will speak to us this evening on the ways that Sen's work might be challenged and stretched by an engagement with Catholic social thought. So the shoe on the other foot, um, as it were, to um, Dr. Zampini Davis's contribution. 
And last, but in fact speaking to us first this evening, is Dr Mark Hayes. Dr Hayes joined us here in Durham as the inaugural holder of the St Hilda Chair in Catholic Social Thought and Practice in September 2014. Dr Hayes is a macroeconomist who works, amongst other things, on ways to make Keynes intelligible in the current context of economics. He was previously Fellow and Director of Studies in Economics at Robinson College, Cambridge, and has a fascinatingly hybrid background in finance and fair trade before full-time academia. His current work focuses on the interface between economics and Catholic social teaching, and he will speak to us now on ethics, economics, and the work of Amata Sen. You're all very welcome. What I hope to do in 10 minutes <clears throat> is demonstrate briefly the significance of the work of Amartya Sen by framing it within the wider context of economics and in particular of welfare economics. Now, welfare economics has nothing to do with the economics of, say, housing or unemployment benefit. <clears throat> it's the branch of economics that purports to provide a guide to right action, so what we otherwise call ethics, but derived from strictly scientific, indeed mathematical, principles. We can trace its origins to the utilitarianism of Jeremy Bentham, as developed by John Stuart Mill, Edgeworth and Alfred Marshall, and as perfected in its original form by uh, A.C. Pigou, who published the definitive book, The Economics of Welfare, in 1920. Now, Pigou's welfare economics is based on the premise that an individual's well-being can be represented by the utility they derive from consuming particular goods. In particular, People will demand more of a good until the utility of the last unit they consume equals its price. The utility of the final unit being the marginal utility. And the neoclassical economists of whom Pigou was a leading member used this concept of marginal utility to resolve the paradox of the value of diamonds and water. Why are diamonds so expensive and water often free when water is essential to life and obviously welfare? And the economists argued that it depends on the balance of supply and demand. Diamonds are very scarce and hard to produce. Water, at least in Durham, is so plentiful that people can consume it to the point where an extra litre more or less makes no difference to them the marginal utility is zero. Things look rather different on a long trek across the Sahara, of course. But using this concept of utility and treating it as a numerical quantity, the economists used the differential calculus, which is the mathematics of small marginal changes, to construct elegant theorems showing how Competition leads individuals 
to maximize the welfare of society as a whole. In other words, they put into maths Adam Smith's basic proposition that self-interested individuals are led as though by an invisible hand to promote the general welfare. And furthermore, Pigou articulated the conditions on which these theorems depend so that they're by no means an unqualified argument for laissez-faire. The case for a carbon tax, for example, to address what we call the externality of climate change follows directly from Pigou's work. And it's worth noting at this point the conflict between this economic concept of social welfare as the total utility of society and the Catholic concept of the common good. The economist Stefano Zamagni has a helpful metaphor. While the total utility of society is the sum of individual utilities, the common good is more like the product of multiplying together individual utilities. So the sum of utility can be increased if one person's utility increases by more than another person's diminishes, even to zero. Thus the enclosure of common land may increase total utility, even if landless peasants are left without an income. Yet the product of multiplying these utilities together becomes zero if only one person's income or utility is zero. Every individual matters for the common good. It's only a metaphor, but I hope it's helpful. Yet, again, in terms of the political aspects of this, an implication of Pigou's concept of utility is that the marginal utility of an individual's income as a whole falls as the individual has more to spend. One can imagine that £100 is worth a great deal more to someone on JSA than it is to Richard Branson. And this leads to the conclusion, awkward for some, that greater equality will increase total welfare. In other words, it leads to a case for redistribution of income. It's also the basic argument for a progressive tax system with higher rates of tax as income increases. And although Cambridge academics like Pigou had no problem with this, it seems to have been the wrong answer in certain quarters, notably the US and the LSE. Whatever the motives, in the 1930s, welfare economics moved onto a second stage with the denial that utility could be measured or that one person's utility could be compared with another's. Welfare economics became concerned with something called Pareto efficiency after the Italian-Swiss economist Vilfredo Pareto. Now this proposition holds that a pattern of production and consumption is efficient if a change in the pattern can only make someone better off by making someone else worse off. If a job seeker finds work, 
That's a Pareto improvement, since everyone is better off. Or if a reduction in shipping costs makes it profitable for England to make more shirts and trade them for more wine from Portugal, that too is a Pareto improvement. However, a subsidy on bread, paid for by a tax on brandy, would not be efficient in Pareto's sense, even if the subsidy benefits the poor and the tax is paid by the rich. And once again, the economists produced mathematical theorems proving that a competitive market produces a Pareto-efficient outcome and that all possible Pareto-efficient outcomes can be achieved by a competitive market. It was admitted that these theorems had nothing to say about the distribution of wealth, that is to say of capital or assets, as opposed to income. Any distribution of wealth could lead to a Pareto-efficient outcome. Whether all the wealth of the country is owned by 1% of the population or owned by all in equal shares, both are compatible with Pareto efficiency. And in practice, this left economics with nothing useful to say about poverty and inequality. Economics claimed to have separated itself from ethics, leaving questions such as the distribution of wealth to politics. In the 1940s, the attempt was made by Bergson and Samuelson to reintroduce some ethical content through the concept of a social welfare function, that is to say, a ranked ordering of different patterns of production and consumption for society as a whole. Now, while that can be defined and in principle imposed by a dictator, in 1951, Kenneth Arrow proved that it was impossible to derive a social welfare function simply from the preferences of the individuals making up society. This theorem was called the impossibility theorem. He actually called it the possibility theorem, but most people refer to it as the impossibility theorem. So once again, <clears throat> economics seemed not a lot of help as a guide to what should be done, except to improve efficiency in that narrow sense. However, Ken Arrow himself saw this obstacle as a challenge to rebuild welfare economics on more sophisticated foundations, which leads us to a third phase known as social choice theory, and so to Sen's contribution. Amartya Sen has in effect broken through the ethical sterility of the previous phase of welfare economics. He's reintroduced measures of well-being <clears throat> upon which economic policy can actually gain some traction, as indeed the original concept of utility, as propounded by Pigou, was intended to. Sen insists that while self-interest is a rational motive, it is not the only rational motive, and to suggest otherwise is to misread Adam Smith. Sen cracks open the implicit circularity that I choose what is good for me and that something is good for me because I choose it. Sen suggests that agency 
the freedom to make choices, has an intrinsic value beyond the achievement of personal utility. And he opened the door to an economic ethics based on human rights. He suggests the analysis of well-being needs to consider collections of observable goods of different kinds, rather than attempting to represent these mixed bags by a single measure of rather non-observable utility. So at this point I'll hand over to Professor Corbridge to outline the substantive elements of Sen's approach. Good evening, everybody, and thank you very much for inviting me uh, this evening. It's just wonderful to be here in Ashur, uh, something I've said on more than one occasion already, and it's very nice to have the opportunity to pretend once again to be an academic because I am essentially a bureaucrat these days. Um, and it's a particular privilege for me to talk about uh, Amartya Sen's contribution to social science, moral philosophy, and broader social thought. I have got to know Amartya reasonably well, and he is, for me, uh, the person that I most admire in post-war social science. I think in broader terms, you mentioned Keynes, who I think would be one of my great heroes in the 20th century. Amongst younger academics, I would think of another Bengali, Abhijit Banerjee, and his wife, Esther Duflo. Um, one of the things about Amartya Sen is just the sheer range of his work, and I've been given 15 minutes to say something um, of a bluffer's guide to Amartya's work. But we've already had a reference to Adam Smith, and I've got rather a large number of quotations to get through and speak fairly quickly. But Adam Smith said in The Wealth of Nations, no society can surely be flourishing and happy, of which the far greater part of the members are poor and miserable. It is but equity, besides, that they who feed, clothe, and lodge the whole body of the people should have such a share of the produce of their own labor as to be themselves tolerably well-fed, clothed, and lodged. So, although it's often called the dismal science, uh, economists have long considered the links, and this is embodied in the work and career of Amartya Sen, between economics and moral philosophy. So Amartya Kumar Sen, to give him his full name, was born in 1933. He will be 83 this year. He was born in Dhaka, which was then in the, the Bengal presidency of uh, British India, now in Bangladesh. And he was educated at a very famous institution, Shantinaketan, which was a school set up by Rabindranath Tagore. And he was part of the Bengali Badralok, the intelligentsia and upper class, upper caste as well, of Bengal. He was educated at a very famous institution in Kolkata, Old Spelling, Presidency College, and then at Cambridge in the UK. To say that this guy was a phenomenal academic is not really to do him justice. He was appointed to a chair, a chair in economics at Jadavpur University, which is a well-regarded university in India at the age of 23. He wasn't able to take and collect his PhD at Cambridge on time because it was done too quickly. It was done well within the three years that he was allowed. 
He built a career at the Delhi School of Economics, the London School of Economics, and Oxford, where his greatest work, I think, was done at those two institutions, moved to Harvard, moved back happily to Cambridge the year that he was awarded the Nobel Prize, um, and became the Master of Trinity College there, and is now back in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he holds two chairs, two of the key chairs at Harvard, both in economics and moral philosophy. So his range is huge, and I think that's his great appeal to many of us. There was a great excitement when he won the Nobel Prize. I happened in January 1999 to be in Patna in eastern India, and there was, on Republic Day, January the 26th, a great parade of the most surreal floats, including the Bihar State Electricity Board float, which was essentially dark, which was an apt metaphor of the public sector in Bihar at that time, and then suddenly looming into sight a 20-foot cardboard cutout of Amartya Sen. And I still have the photograph, and I shared it with Amartya. He's worked on economics, moral philosophy, huge part of development studies I think he's defined, and he's worked enormously on India. And I think there are several parts of his biography that are key to understanding his work. So he's born in 1933. He lives in Bengal. So he lived through the Great Bengal Famine, as it's called, in 1943-1944, when several million people were killed. He lived through the partition of India and saw a Muslim day labourer called Kadamir being chased by and killed by Hindu thugs in the compound of his family house. And, as Mark rightly said, um, he very famously, presumably in 1951, as an 18-year-old, became acquainted with the work of Kenneth Arrow. It's often said that Bertrand Russell, who was a fairly precious man, when he heard Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright by William Blake, fell down the stairs of a staircase at Neville's Court at Trinity College, Cambridge. I think Amartya managed to stay on his feet, but he has engaged with the work of Kenneth Arrow ever since. And what we've got from Mark and what we'll hear later on is the technical contributions of Amartya Sen. But he's a man of his time and a man of his place, and he's never lost the connection to South Asia and to India and a sense of moral responsibility. This is him receiving the Nobel Prize, Memorial Prize for Economics in 1998. If you wonder why Amartya Sen is so loved by many people, it is partly his tremendous warmth as a human being, but I think it's because substantively he has addressed a number of issues that concern us all. And I, in the space of 15 minutes, cannot do justice to this man's enormous erudition and output. And he would not be wanting to be seen as the sole author of work in these areas, but he has contributed very significantly to four areas that many of you will be familiar with. I first became familiar with Amartya's work from a 1981 book called Poverty and Famine. Now, 1981 was really just before the great famines that seemed to hit the Horn of Africa. So we think about Band-Aid from 1984-1985. And Amartya Sen was one of the first people to point out that people do not generally die in famines because of the availability or non-availability of food. That is the FAD thesis, the Food Availability Decline Thesis. It's very easy to assume that famine events are caused by climatic failure, the absence of rainfall. But that generally generally is not the case. And his understanding of the Great Bengal Famine in 1943 and 44 and the famines in Ethiopia demonstrated very clearly that 
it wasn't a random array of deaths. Women were more likely to die than men, and curiously, you were more likely to die in some of these famines in rural areas where food is being produced than in urban areas. It's your entitlement to food that became important. If the state, and this was the case in many African countries, was fundamentally serving the interests of the urban elites and could essentially suck food out of the countryside, you were at danger, at risk in the countryside. Guarding against famine then was really preparing people to exercise their entitlements to food, for example, through public work schemes, rather than only addressing long-run climatic change events. Secondly, Amartya has been very strong in terms of arguing that there are about 100 million missing women in the world today. We know that, biologically speaking, we would expect across the world something around 1,003 women for 1,000 men. If you then total up the number of women in the world, roughly speaking, there are about 100 million missing women today. This is a huge holocaust. Most of those missing women are missing in South Asia and East Asia, particularly in the two large countries, inevitably India and China. There are parts of northwest India today where you will find something like 1,400 men for every 1,000 women. Amartya has drawn our attention to this shocking gender deficit. He's forced us to ask, why is this? Is this the influence, because it's mainly northern and northwestern India, of Brahminical Hinduism, a religious account of the origins of gender violence, or is it, as many of us perhaps would believe, that in South India women are more valuable in a rice ecosystem than in essentially a wheat and plough ecosystem in North India? Amartya is one of the first people who've helped us to understand that we can't measure welfare only in terms of GDP or GDP per capita. GDP per capita would take account of the number of napalm bombs that we build and drop, in this case, as Robert Kennedy said in the late 1960s, on Vietnam. The Human Development Index, the HDI score, is a score that brings together GDP per capita with life expectancy at birth and access to education and health care. This is SEN's attempt to provide a metric by which we better understand how the distribution of income is at least as important as understanding aggregates like GDP or GDP per capita more generally. Less well known, I think, is that Amartya has put himself on the line over the last 20 years by speaking out on occasions against the rise of more vociferous and exclusionary forms of Hindu nationalism is something called Hindutva, or the idea that India is a religious space and owned by a particular religious community, a community that at times can be unwelcoming to other communities, whether they're Muslim or Christian. And that's involved him in a very deep-seated debate about the nature of toleration and the virtues of secularism, including with some very influential, very decent and well-intentioned public intellectuals like Ashish Nandi and Partha Chatterjee. So Amartya has helped us understand some of the most important issues of our time. If there is a thread to his work, and I think there is, because if you read through Amartya's work, you do get, and I don't mean this in a bad way, a sense of repetition 
or a sense of close engagement with a series of connected debates. It's that he's helping us to understand that development is really about freedom. And when you read Amartya Sen's work over a period of about 40 years, it seems to me that what he consistently does is ask, how are we to measure progress? How are we to measure what a good life is all about? And the way that he does that, when you read his books, is that he usually spends the first part of his book arguing against and engaging with. So the work generally is involved in a critique of utilitarianism, a critique of the idea that you can be a liberal and subscribe to the idea of Pareto optimality, arguably his most famous paper, arguing against the idea that libertarianism or a a defense of laissez-faire capitalism is compatible with leading a good life. So a lot of Sen's work is trying to determine what is the proper space for evaluating morality, politics, and economics. And he's increasingly come to argue that what we want to maximize, some people would say it's happiness, some people would say it's welfare, but for Sen, fundamentally, it's freedom. But that's understood in a particular sense. So as, as we've heard, um, one of the dominant forms of argumentation in economics, particularly going back to Bentham and Mill, has been utilitarianism. So generally in Sen's book, there is an engagement with utilitarianism. And his basic argument, and this is a compression of great complexity, is that it's a very unsatisfactory space for evaluating morality and economic achievement because it's insensitive to human difference and to the distinct needs and capabilities of individual human agents. Now, that's always better put in his own words. So if you even go back to 1972 in the Ratcliffe Lectures, he says the trouble with this approach, utilitarianism, is that maximizing the sum of individual utilities, pleasure, happiness, welfare, is supremely unconcerned with the interpersonal distribution of that sum. This should make it particularly unsuitable for measuring or judging inequality. This is the consistent refrain in Sen. How do we measure? How do we judge? How do we evaluate? Libertarianism. Sen famously at Harvard was able to have a lecture course with undergraduates where he engaged with Robert Nozick, who perhaps most recently is the most eminent philosopher of libertarianism. He also argued with John Rawls. Now, I can't go through this at any length, but Sen's essential insight is that the proposal of a consequence-independent theory of political priority is afflicted by considerable indifference to the substantive freedoms that people end up having or not having. More importantly, he says, we can scarcely agree to accept simple procedural rules, that is, lying down in the face of the market, for example, irrespective of consequences. No matter how dreadful and totally unacceptable these consequences might be for the lives of the people involved. And he continues, I thought he continued, to say that we we have to face up to catastrophic events and moral horror and examine to what extent they are compatible with our fundamental moral and economic forms of evaluation. He's also taken issue, and this is more problematic for me, with John Rawls. 
So one of the problems that some of us sometimes have with economics is that economics tends to assume that the agent is fully formed and that we are the authors of our own fortunes. And of course, this is particularly to the fore in libertarianism. So I get paid X because I'm worth X. John Rawls, in A Theory of Justice, famously presented a social contract argument which crudely simplified is a version of there but for the grace of God go I. Now I was born to middle class parents in Blackpool some years ago and a lot of my life chances are a function of where I was born, to whom I was born and the family in which I grew up. Can I really assume that I've had the same life chances as a girl born to landless peasants in Bangladesh at the same time? Highly unlikely. So what is the basis for the assumption that I've made my own life and that therefore I deserve my just rewards? Or to put it another way, as Rawls did under the veil of ignorance, suppose you're on the moon and you're about to be beamed down to earth, and if I might invoke God at this time, God says to you, would you like to make any changes before I beam you down? Well, presumably you would say, my chance of ending up in Beverly Hills is X, very small, my chance of ending up in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia right now and belonging to the bottom billion is quite high, I'm going to say in that case I'm not very keen to be beamed back down to an earth where people are hungry, where people can't go to school, where people can't access water. Please don't beam me down until you've sorted that out. Well, if that's true, there but for the grace of God go I. And a simplification of rules is simply to say if you don't want that for yourself, why would you accept that for other people? And Rawls's essential proposition is that unless we endow people with a minimum set of primary goods, such as education and an income, subject only to a prior rule that we guarantee equal personal liberties, we don't live in a fundamentally moral society. That is actually, to my mind, very close to Amartya's perspective on things. But he wants to draw a distinction between himself and Rawls. And he argues that a strict equation cannot be drawn because primary goods and well-being, because the former cannot always be converted into the latter. So what he tends to do is give you a, a worked example. For example, a pregnant woman may have to overcome disadvantages in living comfortably and well that a man may not need, man need not have, even when both have exactly the same income and other primary goods. So he takes us into a deeper account of what it is to be a functioning human being and a set of capabilities that we need to have to function properly. So the punchline, I think, for Sen is in his recent work on development and freedom, and here I will sit down and allow a more technical presentation from my colleagues. But Sen has come to argue over the course of his career, and there are two long quotations here, and I won't apologise for that because it's best to hear Sen in his own words. But he says that development consists of the removal of various types of unfreedoms that leave people with little choice and little opportunity of exercising their reasoned agency. The removal of substantial unfreedoms is constitutive of development. So this means that he's opposed to authoritarianism. He's probably opposed to state socialism, which was mentioned earlier. However, for a fuller understanding of the connection between development and freedom, we have to go beyond this recognition, crucial as it is. The intrinsic importance of human freedom in general 
as the preeminent objective of development is strongly supplemented by the instrumental effectiveness of freedoms of particular kinds to promote freedoms of other kinds. This is an argument that freedom is an end in itself but promotes other objectives that we would desire. The linkages between different types of freedoms are empirical and causal rather than constitutive and compositional. So last, for example, he says, there is strong evidence that economic and political freedoms help to reinforce one another. That's an interesting proposition if you think about somewhere like China, where you might argue that people have been liberated economically but not politically. When I was a student, there was an Oxfam poster that said, freedom begins with breakfast. And it invited us to think which was the freer country, India or China. But Sen says that there is a strong evidence that economic and political freedoms help to reinforce one another rather than being hostile to one another. Is that true? Similarly, social opportunities of education and healthcare, which may require public action, complement individual opportunities of economic and political participation and also help to foster our own initiatives in overcoming our respective deprivations. If the, part, if the point of departure of the approach lies in the identification of freedom as the main object of development, the reach of the policy analysis lies in establishing the empirical linkages that make the viewpoint of freedom coherent and cogent as the guiding perspective of the process of development. I would conclude then that Sen is, in layperson's terms, a minimal universalist. Sen would argue that there is no moral society on earth that does not provide us with basic primary goods, capabilities and functionings. Beyond that, he embraces, as we've seen, choice. And choice means not only the right to participate in politics through the democratic process, but also the right to participate in market exchange. He is not a laissez-faire economist at all, but neither to take up the distinction that was given earlier, is he a proponent of state socialism? He is, in my view, one of the most humane people working in public affairs today. Thank you. Good evening to everyone. Um, I was asked to say something about the eventual contributions of Amartya Sen's work to Catholic social thought or Catholic social teaching. Um, um, but the first thing I would like to say is that uh, the tensions between the two approaches are quite evident. For example, uh, while sense emphasizes on the individual, while Catholic social teaching emphasizes more on the common good and the relationships. And this is not to say that uh, the capability approach not necessarily has to do with relationships or the common good is not emphasizes the dignity of every single individual, but there are different emphases. Uh, similarly, uh, you can see that uh, Catholic social teaching has a clear understanding of the nature of the good, where Sen is 
uh, animical to define it, at least beforehand, um, then the Sen proposes an, an open list of capability approach, unlike a colleague of him, Magda Nussbaum, uh, and whereas Catholic social teaching would like to say, well, now we need something more concrete in order to understand what's development about. Uh, from a moral perspective, Amartya Sen is, or he defines himself as a consequentialist. Now, the Catholic tradition uh, in, in, has a lot of problems with consequentialism, but depend, uh, because we are more in the light of a Aristotelian Thomistic teleologism. Uh, Amartya Sen also has a very, very strong, optimistic understanding of of reason, of the process of reasoning, whereas we know we put reason between all other human activities and within our theory of sin. So reason, we can commit sin through reason as well. Uh, and um, so there are tensions. I'm not saying that um, they're not compatible, but it's important to say, well, beforehand, we can say, how on earth are you going to put them together? Um, but there are many reasons, despite these tensions, where you can find, I would say, an alliance or a possible dialogue between the two traditions that can enrich each other. Uh, the first one is the starting point. Uh, as we heard before, uh, Sen started by seeing what's happening with famines in Ethiopia and Bangladesh, what, seeing the fact that there were millions of women who were missing, uh, and, and he's always trying to see what's going on in his time. Well, this is exactly the starting point of the Catholic social teaching, the seeing, what's, the seeing and the reading of the signs of the time. Uh, the second basic point for understanding this possible dialogue uh, is that they both have a holistic approach or a universal understanding of development, meaning development for all, which should pro promote freedom and well-being to all. The third one would say an understanding of human flourishing or development as integral, meaning we, we heard an excellent e explanation about what is freedom from, for Zen, but we can say, well, for us also, if we're, for us, I'm sorry, for the Catholic tradition, in which I'm part of, uh, our understanding of development needs to be integral as well. It's not just instrumental. Um, then they both have a similar idea of justice. This is quite surprising. Why they have a similar idea of justice? Because we both, I mean, Catholic tradition and the capability approach, they both understand justice as practical uh, or as gradual and imperfect and also... I would say, as dialogical or democratic. And also they have an approach to economics, a particular approach, as we heard before. Um, um, economics is not just about mathematics and the engineering economics, uh, but it's also about ethics. Now, Amartya Sen describes this perfectly well. He says that the economic, and I apologize for experts in economics that are here, but Amartya Sen explains that there were two strands in economics, I mean, long time ago that were developed in parallel. One was the Aristotelian strand with a more emphasis on ethics. And the other was the Hindian Arathustra strand that it was more, it was in his account, the first, I would say, manual of engineer economics. 
It was about... Um, so they, but they say the problem with modern economics is that we don't... With modern economics, with the current ones, is we don't mix them, we don't relate those two strands, whereas the main, even the neoliberal economics of our time, as many were mentioned, they were very clear on this integration between ethics, ethical and engineering economics. Um, and another reason for uh, bringing them together in dialogue is they both have a critical analysis of utilitarianism or libertarianism or we say communism or, or the globalization process. So, but ultimately, um, the most important thing is that Amartya Sen uh, does not offer, a, our, or his capability approach, does not offer an agenda for social transformation. It is an open-ended language with various bit, bits to be filled in. And he's very open with that. I'm very humble, I would say. So there is when we can, when, from other approaches, we can say, okay, um, I will try to dialogue with this approach. But also equally with Catholic social thoughts. I mean, I, before coming here, I used to uh, present another quote, quote such as uh, um, of other popes and the Second Vatican Council. But I include now a, a quote from the last Catholic social teaching document, Laudato Si, where the pope explicitly says that the church does not presume to settle scientific questions, but can encourage an honest and open debate or dialogue so that particular ideologies will not prejudice the common good. Uh, and he also explicitly says that the seeing of the first part of the method of Catholic social teaching are not to be understood as the principles, you see, solidarity, subsidiarity, the common good. These are tools. Now, the compendium of the social doctrine of the church says this, that the that the thing should be approached with the principles. And the Pope says not, not necessarily. The, the thing is about trying to be painfully aware of the injustices of today, as Amartya Sen does in every single uh, work or, or book that he uh, writes or, or presents. So I, I put only, there are many, many other reasons, but to be, to use a, a sacramental number, I introduced seven reasons for linking the two approaches. Approaches. Now, uh, what I would like to do uh, now is to move on to the contributions that the capability approach can present very quick, very shortly, to uh, the Catholic tradition. And instead of a, a sacramental numbering, I will go. I will. I will go to a more doctrinal number. I will use only three. <laughs> uh, so. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, these three are based on, on this refreshed understanding of the Catholic social tradition or the new development that is that you can find in the latest encyclical Laudato Si of Pope Francis. Basically, it's about integral development, it's about integral ecology, and about integral spirituality. What can the capability approach contribute to these three basic understandings of the Catholic tradition. The integral development, as you might know, we understand uh, integral development as development for all the person and for all persons. So, and we have been saying this for a, quite a few decades. So if development, if a development model does not 
promote the development of all the person. Just, for example, if I develop myself only as an academic, um, intellectually, well, I'm, I have a problem. I'm not developing integrally or holistically. But the same with society. So if, if, if we are promoting the development of certain dimensions of humanity, we need to challenge that model. Likewise, if development is just for some people, as we can, you can see in the slide, well, and not for all, it's not authentic, it's, it's not integral. Um, but what can the capability approach contribute to this? Well, it's about the understanding of gender. <laughs> because um, in the last months I've been, I, I, I was fortunate enough to have conversations about La Dato Si and, and questioning what does progress mean in different countries uh, affected by climate change. And when we asked to randomly to women, just give me one of the main causes that hinders development of this country. And we were in Ethiopia, in Bangladesh, in uh, Sierra Leone, Colombia, and in many parts of the UK. Just give me one reason, that one special, special problem that hinders development. Oh, what, what do you want me to talk about? Whatever you like. So we ask one woman in each country, among them, unanimously, all these women were saying, the main problem is gender inequality. And I was surprised, because I thought when in, in Sierra Leone they were going to go to talk about Ebola. I thought that in Sierra Leone they were, to, they were going to talk about climate change. They were all talking about gender inequality. Even in Colombia, uh, in, in, in problems in the Amazons, I thought they were going to talk about oil industries. They talk about gender inequality. And I was, it was a, a strong message for me. Now, the Catholic social teaching... Uh, Theoretically, we believe that all human beings were created in the image and likeness of God, male and female, ish, isha, uh, they created. And therefore, the development of all persons should be for, for all persons, whether they are women or men. But we are not very strong about that. <laughs> uh, and uh, even in the Dato C, um, for example, in the last, the latest document, there was a, there's a, an advancement. The, the Laudato Si is the first encyclical that when it refers about human beings, it says man or woman, he or she, all the time. So at least in the language, they got it wrong. They got it, sorry, right. But uh, there are only two paragraphs about gender. Only two paragraphs. So the encyclical is about what is development and how do we, how can we cope poverty? responding to the cry of the poor, how can we cope to the ecological issues, to the cry of the earth? And there were only two paragraphs about gender, and it's about the complementarity of gender, which is already contested and not very fruitful. Uh, and so many, many, one of the main criticisms so far of this encyclical that I think is fantastic for other reasons, they said, well, how can you talk about poverty if the majority of the poor people in the world are women? without even mentioning that, as Amartya Sen did, or, or he's still doing it. I think, perhaps, just to, to be fair with Pope Francis, I think it was a political issue, because had he said anything about gender, everybody would have been focused on gender, in, at least in the church, and therefore the whole message of the encyclical would have been omitted. But even, but, but the good thing about the encyclical is saying, I'm, this is an open dialogue, and this is what 
the Catholic tradition can contribute, but I want every single voice to come in. And therefore, I think that the capability approach can, can do a great deal of good uh, in the interaction through gender. But let me say something about that. This is not just because the study of Zen about gender that uh, you mentioned, Stuart, but it's also about the process that Zen has gone through in discovering. But you know that, can I put some a bit of personal thing? Just, just I'm, I'm, I'm almost there, don't worry. Uh, so you know that Zen, um, all his gender studies has been really, really influenced by the women he has been with, by all his wives. Or uh, so, so, so they dis- he he was developing the the understanding of gender through them. I mean, in the marriage relationships with several women, and he, and also with other people such as Marta Nussbaum. So I was wondering, can we do something similar? I'm not suggesting that we priests have to marry it. I, I have several marriages as sin. Uh, but can we do something similar and include the, the voices of the women so as to discover this? And the other contribution is, we, we, it's very easy to say that development should be to all persons uh, and to criticize, particularly as we do, the economic the current economic model of the market based on utilitarianism and a technocratic society. Now, it's absolutely fine. But what are the proposals? But now, Pope Francis now is saying we need a positive proposal, and he's, he's suggesting some things. Still, what is lacking, and we, can, we need Amartya Sen in this, is the economic proposal, the, that he's a more concrete economic proposal to understanding of development. Some of uh, Mark has mentioned some of, it, of them before. And I want to talk just about integral ecology and that's just it. The integral ecology, I don't know if you're familiar with encyclical, is to propose the, not just to integrate the cry of the poor with the cry of the earth, but to integrate politics and economics. And the Pope is very, very clever in this. He says economics and politics are always blaming each other for not taking responsibility of the problems of the world. So politicians are saying, oh, this is a problem of economics. Economists are saying, this is a, this is a, a political decision. Now, Amartya Sen has worked a, a little bit about that, and we can, we can refine our idea, or we can complement, complement I would say, what Pope Francis is calling. Uh, also, the refresh anthropology that we are proposing in integral ecology, based on an understanding of relationality, needs a proper understanding of freedom. Now, I haven't seen any other economists that have described freedom as Amartya Sen. So this distinction between substantial freedom, instrumental freedom, political freedom, and finally capability, so you can say capability is about freedom, I think it will be a great deal of good to put them into this integral ecology of uh, understanding our human behavior as well. Uh, and finally... The economy of, I would say, of daily life that we are proposing in integral ecology, meaning what are we doing in our daily life? How are we treating the earth and other human beings in our daily life? What is the culture that is behind me that is, uh, is underpinning my actions, my choices, and, and my behaviors? Well, Amartya Sen's capability approach, again, can complement. I don't think it's... Uh, I can complement this vision because the choices that we make 
are for some reason, and we can explore more a little bit more the economic choices through a dialogue, and that's the action that Francis is proposing, and Amartya Sen proposes also in the idea of justice. The whole idea of justice cannot be done without a process of dialogue. Uh, and Pope Francis is saying something similar. So why don't we put together and create, well, what is this process about? How can we, how can we move forward? What does it mean, a process of dialogue in the international co community? Because nobody knows how to do it. Well, these two theories together can put them together. But finally, and I'm going to explain this, but I'm happy to ask, answer questions if you are interested. Pope Francis is proposing something slightly new in Catholic social thought, that is integral spirituality. Now, integral spirituality is about how can we integrate our faith values into our economic, civic, and environmental actions. But for that, we need a proper understanding of what agency and participation. And participation... Uh, of all people, including the poor. This is a picture taken in Colombia of these indigenous women were participating in the mass. Now, a proper understanding of sense, agency and participation will challenge Catholic social teaching understanding of participation, especially, not just in the sacraments, not just, but especially in who defines Catholic social teaching. Who, I mean, who is defining the principles, who is defining the judgment, who is proposing the solutions. Because I talk a lot about Pope Francis, but to be fair with the message of Pope Francis, and if we might merge this with Amartya Sen, well, it should be a, a development of the tradition through the participation, not just of women, but of other agents that are not necessarily theologians or not necessarily in the hierarchy of the church. And that will be a massive change and I, we don't know how to do it, but perhaps the capability approach can help us. So I'm, 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 I'm finishing with this picture. I, I use this picture. This is called Diálogo al Alboroso. It's from a Spanish-Argentinian painter called uh, Luis Seoane. And the reason I'm putting this picture is because I want to bring a bit of sense of joy. The joy of the dialogue, if you look at the two... At the two Agents, can we say, <laughs> persons at the back, are in dialogue. And the joy of the dialogue is something new, it's different. Well, I would like the Catholic tradition to dialogue with others, particularly with the capability approach, and bring and, and to open the possibility of joy and change. And that's why the people are demanding, that's what we can provide through this dialogue. Thank you. Thank you. So we have heard about Sen's works, we have heard about his contribution to economics and his contribution to Catholic social teaching. But could the social tradition of the Catholic Church have something to offer to Sen's work? And I would like to explore three contributions, not because there are only three, but because uh, it's um, easier to take away. A first contribution is that CST could offer a more relational anthropology that Sen currently admits to. 
The second contribution derived from the first is that CST could offer a more realistic account of human failure, what we know as structural sin. And the third contribution I shall explore is that it could offer a stronger motivational basis for making the world a bit less unjust, as Sen said in his idea of justice. And I will concentrate on only one aspect of Sen's work, which is probably uh, what he's most famous for, uh, his capability approach. And we have already heard quite a few contributions on it. I will not say much. I just want to emphasize that Sen um, has a characteristic of leaving things open. It's, he, he doesn't want to uh, settle things down. So freedom is not only about rhetoric, it's as well it permeates the whole, his whole, um, his corpus, that it's open-ended and people are free to design it, to push it, or to bring it the, the way, the way they wish to, to bring it. And as it has already been said, the capability approach is essentially a moral evaluation framework. It is to assess situations from the perspective of freedom, uh, which has two aspects, well-being and agency. And for Sen, this is enough to start thinking about reducing injustice. And we've heard a few times the example of women, of missing women. So Sen doesn't want a theory of justice about you know, how should we arrange society as what is just and unjust. He says it's enough to compare situations. Let us compare the number of women in India. Let us compare the number of women, uh, the, the ratio of men and, and women in, um, let's say, in, in Nigeria. Why are there so many missing women? And so by submitting that information, by having that comparison and submitted, submitting that, that information to public debate, he says this is enough to start a dialogue about how to reduce that injustice. How come that a hundred million, um, miss, uh, there are a hundred million missing women? Why are they, are they left to die when they are born? So, um, the first contribution to this capability approach that CST can, can offer is that of a relational anthropology. It has often been said uh, by uh, the proponents of the capability approach um, that it is ethically individu individualistic, in the sense that what matters for evaluation is what happened to each individual, how each person is able to be or do, not how the family is doing, but how each person, whether the daughters are, are doing well, whether the sons are doing well, but not the family as a whole. Because if we take the family as a whole, we miss the information about each person. And some people are arguing that, that this ethical individualism is a defining feature of the capability approach. And one reason for this very strong focus on the individual person is that if we focus on groups or institutions, we may, um, we may hide information about oppression and inequality within the group. Not that families or groups are, are not important, but what matters is the impact of these groups on individuals. So, for example, what is the impact of family relations on the life of women, on the life of, um, of each individual in that family? And um, 
And Sen has always defended this ethically individualistic stance. He says that, well, it is enough to acknowledge that we are interdependent, that we are in interaction with each other. And therefore, it is enough to simply uh, collect information about the ability of each person to participate. And that is enough. He says there's no need to evaluate structures. It is enough to, uh, to evaluate the, the ability of each person to participate in these structures. However, this can be criticized. Um, for example, when you think about structural inequality or the caste system, well, you need to have more information than just about individuals. It's not enough to only assess the impact of the caste system on individuals. You also need to have a, a, a grasp of, of, of the, the structure itself. And this is a contribution of, of the Catholic social tradition to the capability approach what it calls the common good. So it holds individual dignity as one principle, but as well the common good, and the two have to illuminate each other. We cannot put more emphasis on one or another. So for the, the for CST, for the, um, because persons interact and are in relation with each other, they create something that is beyond them, that cannot be reduced to any single individual as such. And as human dignity can be violated, so can the common good, so can the relationships that these people generate go wrong. And so if we focus on individuals only, we miss information about the quality of these relationships. And this is why, you know, this could be an important contribution to the capability approach to evaluate the quality of relationships to evaluate the common good in addition to what is happening to each individual. And when we think about climate change, we could have thousands of assessments of how well or badly individuals are doing in different places in the world. But this comparative assessment of individual outcomes is not enough to address climate change. We need as well to assess the nature of relationships with uh, with each other and within the environment. And one such structure is the throwaway culture. No matter how much as an individual I reuse, I recycle, I repair, the throwaway culture remains if the whole system of production and consumption does not change. And this situation is called in the Catholic tradition structural sin. And this constitutes probably a major challenge to Sen's work into the capability approach. Although Sen uh, puts a lot of emphasis on agency, he doesn't fully acknowledge the full extent of human agency not always being exercised for the good of all. And this is something that um, the compendium of the social doctrine of the church uh, emphasizes. And, uh, it distinguishes no, the, this, the, um, the personal, the social, and the structural. We talk a lot about individual sins, but the, the, um, what the uh, actions of individuals create something that becomes beyond them.
And um, so the throwaway culture is is an example of of, of this structural structural sin. And uh, John Paul II, in in and uh, his encyclical uh, Solicitudori Socialis, nineteen eighty seven, uh, gave um, a definition of structures of sin. He says structures of sin are rooted in personal sin and thus always linked to the concrete acts of individuals who introduce these structures, consolidate them, and make them difficult to remove. And thus they grow stronger, spread, and become the source of other sins, and so influence people's behavior. So this reality of structural sin sits at odds with the ethical individualism of sin's works. The agency of an individual and the tuning of her actions towards God and the good of others, what Christians would call conversion, is not sufficient to redress an unjust state of affairs. I could choose to have a radical conversion and change my life completely and have a, a, a sustainable lifestyle. But my individual conversion is not going to make the global economic production and consumption more sustainable. And Pope Francis says in his um, Laudato Si encyclical, social problems must be addressed by community networks and not simply by the sum of individual good deeds. The ecological conversion needed to bring about lasting change is also a community conversion. So one could ask oneself, well, if my individual action is not going to lead to structural change, you know, if I live a sustainable lifestyle, it doesn't going to make any difference to, to, to the future of the planet. What's the point, then, of changing lifestyles? And here, the Catholic social tradition uh, rejoins forces with sense work and the centrality of agency in removing sufferings and responding to uh, the suffering of people or the cry of the earth and of the poor. They are both rooted in the fundamental category of hope. That state of affairs can be changed if human beings change and act differently. And they are both based on the idea of responsibility. Sen's idea of agency is, after all, not very different from the Catholic understanding of the common good. In his The, the We Lectures, Sen wrote that the importance of the agency aspect in general relates to the view of persons as responsible agents. So in Sen's words, there is an implicit recognition that humans are responsible for each other. But it is not clear how this sense of responsibility and concern for the lives of others can be nurtured or emphasized. And here, CST could offer a motivation for agency and for actions to change structures of sin. And Laudato Si makes the case for recovering an awareness of our common home to motivate action. And I quote here from the encyclical, Many things have to change course, but it is we human beings, above all, who need to change. We lack an awareness of our common origin, of our mutual belonging, and of a future to be shared with everyone. 
The basic awareness would enable the development of new convictions, attitudes, and forms of life. A great cultural, spiritual, and educational challenge stands before us, and it will demand that we set out on the long path of renewal. So Laudato Si draws attention to certain attitudes to counter the utilitarian mindset that Sen has sought to displace throughout his life and to replace with a freedom-centered moral approach. Among the attitudes that Laudato Si highlights is that of thanksgiving and gratuitness. But most of all is the awareness of the deep interconnectedness of the world. A human freedom-centered moral approach, as Sen proposes, would be incomplete if it, if it did not incorporate the reality that everything is connected. And this is one of the major contributions that the Catholic social tradition could make to this new moral approach which Sen has introduced in the social sciences and one which could um, probably um, immensely help its mission of replacing the utilitarian mindset, which has guided for so long economic relations and has put our common home at risk. And I think I'll stop here. I have other things, but my ten minutes are over and I don't have a um, further in the discussion. Thank you very much. So I think we asked our speakers to do something deeply torturous. They've spent their lives spilling many words and having many thoughts about Amata Sen's work, and we've asked them to condense that into 10 or 15 minutes, which is a really, really harsh thing for us to do. But thank you so much for providing great riches in the process of doing that.